Oops, all right. We are just pouring some whiskey here, and Austin poured me too much. Austin, that's right. Who is here? My goodness. Welcome to the podcast, guys. This is Infinite Pulp. I'm here with a couple of people that are really important to me, and one of them you guys are very well familiar with. It's me. The- it's Max. Hello. <laughs> and um, the other one is uh, my little my little brother, and I can say that because he is slightly shorter than I am and weighs uh, probably like thirty or forty pounds <laughs> less than I do right now. So he's also my younger brother, and so. Um, so I'll always be the little brother. No, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that you'll always be littler because you're shorter than I am, but you won't be, you wouldn't be my little brother if you were bigger. Like, I don't, like, Alan should never call me his little brother because I'm not li- more little than he is. So you just be his younger brother. Yes, exactly. That's mm-hmm. how it's supposed to go. Um, no, my little uh, younger brother Austin is here and um, I'm really excited to have him on. So... Austin, you should you should introduce yourself a little bit because um, you have a voice and I don't need to talk for you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Austin. Um, I've known Aaron my whole life and known Max for some of my life. The golden um, years. The golden years of my life, which was like that 10 days in Orlando I came down to visit. And that's it. Um, and I live in China. And I've lived there the last two and a half years, and it's been great. But no, it's really been great. So I'm glad to be a part of the show and just excited to see what happens. Yep. So excellent, man. That's what we are going through and talking about today. Um, Forewarning, a little fairness, we had about 20 minutes of a recording that we did right before this that um, I've tried to recover and have lost. No. Yeah. So I'm going to recap the 20 minutes. Um, we had better jokes in the in the opening. They were funnier. And we had um, Max won and guessed the correct TV show that we were watching within two guesses. It was incredible. Um, we were watching Parks and Rec. Um, and then we were talking about Midsummer, the uh, folk horror film that you all should go watch. And because it is horrifying. It is horrifying. Oh and it's weird and it's great. And... Um, I really, really enjoyed it. We would get into a little bit more in depth, but you know what? I think something's a little more important than that. Um, you guys can go watch it for yourselves and get that. I want to talk to Austin about the last few years of his life because I think it's really cool what he's been doing. So um, I think we should kind of start there. I don't – I'm a terrible brother for knowing this. I don't actually know the year that you went over to China. <laughs> but I do know, Austin, you've been living in China the last several years. And um, why don't you walk us through kind of what led you to get there and um, and when you started. Because so, I, I don't know that and I should. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, the first person in our family to go to China was you. That's true. I, was, I did go to China first. Like, 10, 15 years ago. That is, that was. I am not that old. <laughs> I went to China when I was 21. So that would have been, what, 11 years ago. Okay. That was so close. Okay, yeah, you're ten, right. That, ten, was, that close. was close enough. <laughs> um, so I went to China for the first time when I was also at George Fox. It was my sophomore year. I spent about a month there. And the first city I actually ever was in was Wuhan, where COVID had again and uh since then there's just been more and more chinese people in my life and it's kind of hard to explain but they just ended up in my life my junior year at fox and or george fox and my senior year as well 
And then right after university, I actually moved to California and worked at a private Christian school down there for two years. And down there is when I kind of fell in love with education and teaching and had no desire to ever work with high schoolers or be around them again. It's just the worst. <laughs> um, but they were nice people for the most part. And when I was down there, I actually ended up taking a trip to Hong Kong by myself. Uh, Mom wasn't very happy about it. She really <laughs> wanted me to come visit her during spring break. But um yeah so i went to hong kong for a week the first time outside of the country by myself and the first time i had been really in china um by myself and that week was just crazy crazy fun um i you know going to george fox you're not really like close to portland but when you can compare chinese cities to U.S. cities, there's just no comparison whatsoever. And so being in Hong Kong um, just gave me a whole new perspective on like how people live life and how city life is so completely different than anything I've ever grown up with. And yeah, I actually went to this place called Tiantan Buddha, which is on the southwest part of Hong Kong. And uh, up there, I did kind of like, what do you ever want to say? Soul searching to me, it'd be praying, listening, whatever it is. And it was in that kind of moment that I knew I needed to move to China. I didn't know if it was China specifically. I just thought it was East Asia because I was going to Japan and Malaysia and Singapore that summer as well. Um, but kind of through the next year or so being in California, it ended up being China. Uh, and so I guess I ended up leaving fall of 2017 to China. Mm. Awesome. Cool. Have you have you always kind of had a a admiration and, and love for the East Asian cultures or does that something that started when you're at George Fox? Does it start or is it just like, hey, because I've been to China and before that, my main love was um, definitely like more centered towards Japanese culture. But when I went to China the first time, I was like, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, just like, I just want to come back and go more and more. Mm -hmm. It's really an incredible place to go. Um, and you, I know you talked about the cities and I love how they build the cities up instead of like out. Mm -hmm. U.S. builds cities out and mm -hmm. like China builds cities up. And mm -hmm. it's really incredible to see that. Like, But it's person. like down to the littlest details, like the malls don't go out. Right. Like all the malls are like at least four foot or four stories high. Yeah. And every every mall here is like two stories high. But and I've been in like 12 story malls before. And do they go underground ever? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Oh, that's so it's just yeah. so much fun. I remember walking around some some malls in Hong Kong. <laughs> it, was, it was great. Mm -hmm. um, so right back around on my tangent, you know, was it kind of something you always enjoyed or was it something that like struck you at George Fox that was like, this is now my path? Or was it kind of like, had you always had an interest in that culture? I would say that I always had an interest in Japanese culture growing up watching Dragon Ball Z, having it be my favorite show when I was a kid. Um, I was always kind of like interested in what it was, but being, I don't know, where we were and how we grew up, you we were just not exposed to like any yeah. other cultures at all. Um, so I was always very interested, but I never really knew like what a different culture was. Um, and I actually wasn't supposed to go to China when I was at Fox. I was supposed to go to Nicaragua. And when the Sur teams came out, I guess, uh, I ended up on the China trip. And my first thought was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. It's kind of dangerous over there. That'd be kind of fun to go. Um, 
But it was really that first time getting outside of North America and really being invested or in a culture that is so completely foreign, so completely different, down to the food on the streets, to the way people are talking, even to the way people are walking and how that's even culturally different. Um, It was kind of in that month I was there that my eyes kind of got opened up to like, wow, this world is huge and I'm very interested in learning about it and learning about different places and different countries. And China just kind of like was a funnel after that point. It was just more and more relationships, more and more things kept pulling me over there. And then I found this great deal on a flight to Hong Kong and it made all the sense. Yeah. So. so did you go wind up going back to Wuhan when you returned eventually? Like, was it was it a return to like your original home or are you did you go back and live in a second location? I went back and I lived in a second location. I was only in Wuhan for nine days the first time that we were there. Okay. And it was mostly like a touristy and like check out English teaching kind of trip, really. Uh, but the second, or I guess the time I went back to live there, I actually ended up living a couple hours south of uh, Wuhan, um, which has a whole story in itself of how I ended up in that city. Because uh, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be in that city, but, you know, that's just how things happen. Um, what city are you in? What, what, where, did you, where did you end up leaving? So I or am saying? in uh, Nanchang, Jiangxi, and... The best way to explain where that is is kind of like northern Alabama. So I'm like, I live in the northern Alabama, maybe southern Mississippi of China. But as far as like what the way Chinese people think about where I live, it's a pretty good comparison where like Americans think about like northern Alabama. So it's a rural area? Um... No, the province is, but the city I live in is five and a half million people. Oh, so, wow. But That's rural a big city. is like, it's a very different term in China. Because yeah, yeah, there's yeah, like a sure. very distinct ruler. Like there is the city and the country and they never overlap. Um, okay, but so here I feel like you can kind of mesh into like suburbs and like different things like that. Um, but yeah. So the province is Nanchang and then the, the city is Jiangxi? No, the province is Jiangxi and the city is Nanchang. Okay. And what is the local language of that province? Technically, it would be Nanchanghua, which is just like Nanchang dialect. But everybody Mm -hmm. speaks Putonghua, which is the uh, simplified Mandarin. Okay. Does each like province in different location there have like its own dialect or does it get smaller than that? It gets smaller in that when you're in the north, most people would call it Dongbehua, uh, uh, which is northeastern dialect. And so there's a bunch of provinces that would speak northeastern dialect. And then there's like Cantonese, which is Guangdonghua, which is like Hong Kong language. And then where I live, because there's it's closer to Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Yunnan, you tend to get a lot more ethnicities in the south of China, which creates more dialects. So there's like Nanchanghua, and then there's a city to the east, of, uh, west, east of us called Shangrao. And Shangrao has like dialects within its own city. But everybody speaks Mandarin, but the dialects are different than Mandarin. So... It can get pretty complicated, especially in the South. The North, not so much. Do you find, like, as as a foreigner, that people expect you to just speak, like, Putong? Or do are there people there in, like, major vendors and stuff who speak English? How has it been for you, like, 
just existing in the city and coexisting with people? Mm. How does communication work? Yeah. Uh, the basic language to order stuff, food, counting, asking how much stuff is, most people can kind of handle learning that communication. Um, the Chinese language is vastly different than the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of reasons other than just like, the characters that make Chinese really difficult for English speakers to learn, um, even down to what we do in English. And um, for the most part, I was in an area that's been pretty recently developed, and so I didn't get a lot of stares. But anytime you would leave the city and kind of head out into the country, it's not uncommon for like people to just look at you while they're riding on their bike and for you to like see somebody accidentally crash because you're walking by. Um, so that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty funny. Um, I never saw that in the city. But the nice part about being in the city is that there's enough English stuff around that you can get that you can get by. Now, if you go place like Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, uh, Beijing, obviously, they have whole like international districts that are full of foreigners. And so most people would speak English. But when it's like down to where I live and talking specifically about Chinese people, um, I would say that the majority of Chinese people can read some English. But as far as like oral communications, pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. So have you boned up on your Putong then? (laughs) <laughs> to kind of like kui, kui. mesh? I have a little bit. Cool. Um, it's been okay. I'm working on it. So can you give us just a little sample? Like how would you say my name is Austin? Austin or Austin. That's impressive. That was So that was two different phrases you used was one one language and one a different language or were they both just like variations on that phrase my name is kind of the variation so jiao is like i'm called this um which is more like culturally based that like you're called based off of your family name um Mm -hmm. or it's kind of like because it's a collectivist society it's like more group culture uh, but if you were in Mingzi, that's like specifically your family name. So actually, it's not grammatically correct to say Austin. It should say, well, the Mingzi struts. My family name is Struts. Mm-hmm. So it's like pretty common to hear, well, the Mingzi Li. My family name is Li. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So do most people there, because in, in Chinese, it's, is it also surname and then personal name? Like in terms of like yeah. your formal surname title? Surname and then first name is how you would, I guess, see it. So is your is your public name there Struts? Like, are you just the the, the only Struts in <laughs> Nanchang City, probably? Yeah, uh, public name with most of my students would be Teacher. Okay. Very very few of them would call me Mister Struts or even Austin. I guess like closer relationships, I'd be called Austin, but the vast majority of my name is like Teacher Lao Shi. Um, and then obviously, like, my closer friends who can speak English call me Austin. Mm-hmm. I have a question about that. So your students, would it – because it's a different culture than us, because um, Austin and I went to – I don't know how unique this is of a university, but we went to a Quaker university, and mm-hmm. all of our professors, um, we used their first name. Like, mm-hmm. we didn't say doctor, professor for all of our professors, like my entire college, collegiate <laughs> career was just first name basis with all my professors. Um, 
and just kind of knowing the very brief amount that I that I have, is that something that would? I guess my question would be: Is is it would it be appropriate for them to call you? Would they even want to call you by your first name as a student to a teacher, or do they want to have that level of like breakage of like most universities here, where you're like, okay, no, I'm Doctor Aaron, or. I think most Chinese students are so comfortable with the power distance between teacher and student, which is something that's different, obviously, in China and Japan and Korea or a lot of East Asian cultures than it is in America. We have such a close power distance with teachers, with like businessmen, with CEOs, like everything's very much like egalitarian here, which has its benefits. But my students like want to know. They want to know and feel that there is a distinct difference between us, and there is a distinct power difference between us. So generally, I tell them that my first name is Austin, but very few of them call me that. So the only ones who do are the ones who I would spend extra time with outside of class. Yeah, I guess we should get into it a little bit too um, of what you do over there. We haven't really actually discussed why you were actually <laughs> in China, and we're talking about your students and your teachers. You know, early we could kind of infer that you liked to teach, mm-hmm. um, but but what's the purpose of your reason for being over there um, for you? And then just you know. What's your job, I guess? Because hmm. those can be two separate things, like your purpose and then your job. And you can get into that as much as you want to or don't want to. Cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, the basic purpose of what I do is just loving Chinese people. And that's like my purpose and my goal for being over there. Um I know it's one of those things where like each person has like a joy or a desire, or a passion. And when I think about just spending time with Chinese people, learning about their culture and their history and doing activities with them, there's a joy with those people that is different than I don't know, different than when I spend time with other people and the whole like food and language and everything is just creates a lot of joy. Um, and so that was kind of like the initial purpose for getting over there. Initially, I didn't think I was going to be a teacher. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought about going into language, going into starting a business. I don't know, just finding a way to live in China. And eventually, I ended up finding an organization that shared a lot of the same values that I do and helps people get over and teach in China um, and puts them with a community of people, which is incredibly helpful. Um, because you don't want to move to China and not know what you're doing and you probably won't get a whole lot of help. And so having that community of people there is really valuable and really helpful. But basically, I'm a a university teacher and a university English teacher and I guess kind of a football coach at the same time. I know. We're going to get into that in a second (laughs) because I think that's the best accomplishment you've done over there. And I want to talk about that because I think it's awesome. Um, but I had a question from my partner that I would uh, that she was just like, well, how, how does he teach over there if he doesn't speak like natively the language? And mm-hmm. can you take us through the process of like just that? Because I've always mm-hmm. been interested in that, too. Mm-hmm. And thinking like, well, I could I mean, teaching English in Japan, which sounds awesome, but. Do I have to learn Japanese, you know, mm-hmm. like it's which is I'm terrible with languages. I am not good with languages. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. um, what's that process look like when you're like in the classroom and how does mm-hmm. that work with that language barrier? Yeah, good question. It helps to know the history of where your students are coming from and to know what they're bringing into the classroom, of course. And China is, for lack of a better term, like pretty behind on standard like language methodology methods. 
So China still teaches what's called the grand, uh, grammar translation method, which is basically like you see a Chinese sentence and you translate it directly into English, and then that's what you have to do. And so that's why it's always, how are you? Fine. Thanks. And you? And that's like the standard dialogue that every Chinese person knows. You come to America, nobody ever says that because we understand the culture a little bit better. As far as how in the classroom goes, you can trust that most of your students can read English pretty well. Um, again, there's a lot of culture that goes into understanding what <laughs> your paragraphs are actually saying. Um, but it's not a necessity to be able to speak the language that you're teaching. It probably helps a lot. Let's reverse that. Um, Go ahead. It's not a necessity to teach, to, to be a native speaker of the language that you're trying to teach English to. Yeah, it's not a necessity right. for me to learn Chinese to be able to do To it. be able to teach English? Okay. Right. Which is moderately true for most language teachers. You don't have to be able to speak that language to be able to teach it. Um, let's, go, let's back up on that. You don't need to be able to speak the language of your students. I know. That's what I'm thinking. That's like, what I'm I know. I know what you're trying. I know <laughs> what you're trying to say. But we have some literal listeners, you know. Um, <laughs> we got there. We got there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as like in the classroom goes, um, I don't know how much you want me to get into like methodology and like the like phonology studies of English, but basically. When you're teaching to low-level learners, you obviously use very simple phrases and very simple grammar. Um, as your students get older and are better and better and more improved, you can speak a little bit faster and you can speak a little bit more advanced with your verbs or adjectives or vocabulary, whatever you want to use. Um, but one of the real challenges is, is because in English we do something that very few languages do. Um, we have to be very careful to not take out the rhythm of English. Um, so instead of saying like, how are you? We would like elongate and say, how are you? Which helps to a degree, but nobody who actually speaks English says, how are you? And elongates everything. So there's just different things that you have to be aware of when you walk in the classroom and then know the levels of your students. But for the most part, when things get really challenging, you kind of like, <laughs> this happened to me in first year, you find the students who are really good. And if you don't have enough patience, you just tell them to translate it to Chinese, <laughs> which definitely happened my first semester in China. So, yeah, I think that's kind of would be for anybody, though, like any kind of job you're starting off, you want to find those people that are good at it and say, mm -hmm. how can we help, you know, or mm -hmm. you know, find the... Find the folks around you that can definitely lift you up if you're struggling mm -hmm. with that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you think that because I would think that somebody coming over to America, North America, USA would be um, it'd be really difficult to teach Mandarin if you didn't speak English because we don't touch that at all mm -hmm. and so do you think because a lot of the rest of the world has a rudimentary understanding of english and that's why it's possible to do that you mm -hmm. know it's just like they find languages more important than the u.s does so mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think you hit it on the head there it's definitely possible to teach a language without speaking the same language even at all or else we wouldn't have like immersion schools or right like you wouldn't have you know, the language learners of the past who just went to a country and just listened and learned. Mm -hmm. Those people are incredible, by the way. Um, but because English is the lingua franca of the world, it's the trade language of the world. Like 
when you get a PhD and you publish your writing, it has to be in English. And that's just the standard. So like all publications are generally in English. Wow, I didn't know that. That's incredible. So like no matter where you're at, if you're getting your thesis and you're publishing your dissertation, that has to be in English? Doesn't necessarily have to be, but the vast majority are. Mm -hmm. And so the vast majority of Europeans, Americans, like if you want to publish to American research, obviously it needs to be in English. Right, right. But, you know, obviously like Japan and China, like, they're obviously very well off educational wise. And so, of course, they have right, Japanese right. articles yeah. and Chinese articles. But the vast majority mm. of, you know, like there's PhD students in China who are specifically learning how to correct the grammar of their PhD work so they can get it published yeah. in an American or an English Does it, journal. Um, and this goes for both of you. I want to put this out for both of you guys. Do you, does it sadden you a little bit that English has become the trade language of the world? Because, like, it's forced, like, the U.S. to not have to try? <laughs> you know, like, would would you rather see something better than that so we would kind of be more forced to learn a different language? I don't know. I've always kind of been, as I stated earlier, is I'm, I'm bad with languages. I took a year of Japanese in college, and I wasn't great at it. And um, it, it, I don't know. I wonder if learning from a younger age would have been important like emergent schools you have here and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, kind of goes out to both of you. Is that saddens me a little bit that English is the trade language of the world. Does it sadden you guys? Like, I feel like I've lost not having a chance to, to learn a language because of that. Hmm. American privilege. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that's, I it's think the, Max, go, go ahead, ahead, Max. No, do it. No, I think you hit on the point. There is, there, there comes a point when you're overseas and you look down, <clears throat> excuse me, and you realize you have an American passport and just what that means. And even with all the stuff happening in, uh, in our country in the recent months, to have and hold an American passport is pe something that people don't understand how valuable that is. And it's not even because we are above i mean most people would probably say america's above other countries that's not in the sense that what i'm saying but the privilege of being able to speak english and not have to learn it um because you just learn it growing up mm -hmm. and the places that you can go and the things you can see because of that we don't have gratefulness for no absolutely yeah it's one of those where it's that that <sighs> And it's, I think Max hit it too about being a, the, the privilege of it of like, I didn't have to learn. I, I took a six month class, class, class before <laughs> I went to China to learn about the history and the culture. So we wouldn't have be so like struck when we got there and we didn't touch language at all, like in <clears throat> the least bit. And so the fact that like, I mean, granted, we did have a. Um, interpreter that was with us the entire time we were there, the same person all the way through, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. But uh, just like sitting there and thinking like, I can do this and I don't have to try. And that's such a thing that I think people don't recognize uh, about just being a native English speaker mm -hmm. and, and that the privilege that comes with it, because Austin's right, you can go almost anywhere in the world and probably somewhat get by, mm -hmm. um, which you can't do with other languages. Uh, right. And, and, and the English is a great language, but it's really hard to learn. Mm -hmm. And it's a really hard language for people to <clears throat> like going from Chinese or Japanese or Southeastern languages 
into English is like one of the hardest transitions for your brains to make as far as like linguistically we're concerned. So, hmm. Yeah, English I've heard is like the most difficult language in the world because of how much nuance has evolved over the mm-hmm. last sort of hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. Even even just saying something like, you know, like in, in any other place in the world, you would say like, hello or good day. And us now, we say either sup or eh, or like there's so many, there's like <laughs> dozens of redundancies in the language. And, and yeah. like, but it's really interesting because like when you look at English and you study at like a higher level in education, you understand like why we say sup, like there's a reason why we do that in English. Mm-hmm. And it's like down to the rhythm of how like phonology, the sounds of our words like there's a reason why we do that um we're so concerned with like what's called like peaks in language that we'll do pretty much anything we can to shorten words to get there as fast as we can mm-hmm. um so that's why we get like sup what are you doing you right. know we like trim all these sounds out of english but then you take like an arabic speaker who like doesn't change the sounds at all and like the full length of the word is so important and you tell them to come like start cutting out all these sounds in English, like that's hard. Yeah. I never really considered that being an English speaker, you know, <laughs> um, speaking of that, of like the peaks and the valleys, something that I learned the other day from a podcast the other day, like a year ago, um, the, the, and I think this is really interesting in talking about kind of like sup and like that kind of stuff. Um, when you hear something and it registers you like a nostalgic feeling, but just by like hearing it, I believe it's called like having is it? It's I think it's a echoic is like the nostalgia you get from hearing something like a certain sound, and it's like different than like other things. It's really interesting, mm. um, and like so that's why like you'll watch a TV show or something, or like I'll be watching like the Halloween movie and I'll hear the the little theme song and I'll be like, ooh yeah, mm-hmm. like it's a very specific tie joke and nostalgic that's tied into um, language and tied into learning, like just hearing things. And I think that's what makes language so interesting as far as those peaks and valleys is because that matters a lot in that sense. Is mm-hmm. but like not necessarily if you're gonna have like more of a monotonous monotonous word to it right and when we change the peaks intentionally from like words where like they standardly wouldn't be we're sending a very clear message of what we're trying to say but if you take a non-english speaker who doesn't understand that like we don't think about it because we hear it our entire life but when we bring something like emphasis in and we emphasize a word every native english speaker understands what's trying to be said Mm -hmm. but someone who doesn't know that that's like what's specifically happening the cultural meaning goes way over there. Yeah, head. that's really interesting to me. It's like the, nobody should watch Friends if they can't watch. If they don't speak English. Chandler <laughs> would be lost on everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. That's really good insight. It's wonderful. Um, you mentioned something earlier that I really want to touch on <laughs> because I'm excited about this. Um, so you mentioned you're also a coach. So what do you coach over there? <laughs> I coach in one of the semi-pro slash How, amateur Where league. are you at from the top? Do you, there's like certain levels that you know. So Austin coaches football in China. American football. American football in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, where's like, if the NFL is here, like, <laughs> are you like D1 college, D2, semi-pro, like... 
Oh gosh. Well, how many steps are good, you away? This is a good perspective. So the University of Penn, which is the Division One AA football team, right? right? They were six and four three years ago, I think. Whatever in their conference, they came over to play the Chinese All Star team and won eighty two to zero. Yeah. So. The best players in China get smoked by Division Two. Granted, they had a month of practice, and if you spend any time around football, a month is not a time at whatsoever to really right. learn anything. I would say that my team. Well, just like in China level, like don't compare it to the U.S. Oh, like yeah, I'm not, not I'm not concerned about like how talented they are compared mm-hmm. to like Penn. You know, right. I'm concerned about like <laughs> if you have the very top level of Chinese American football. Mm-hmm. Where was your team at after that? Like, oh, we were like top three oh, teams, okay. like of all like the teams, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, yeah. and was that the top? Five, is that the top level in China? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're. I mean, in Chinese, you're profe- you're coaching professional football. Basically, essentially, yeah. yeah. Essentially. So you're you're a Chinese professional. Well, you're a professional <laughs> Chinese American football coach. Yep. Kind of in that order. And what did you guys just do this last year? We won the City Bowl National Championship. Um, Heck yeah! What does that even mean? Break that down for me. What is like the the Chinese National Championship or like? Yeah. So there's. <laughs> There's two leagues. Well, there's technically three leagues in China. There's a college league, which is like only big cities, Shanghai, you know, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Beijing. And then there is the CNFL, Chinese National Football League. And then there is the City Bowl. And we play in the City Bowl. And the City Bowl and the CNFL split, I think, six years ago, maybe seven years ago. China, I mean, football's been around maybe 10, 11 years in China, so not very long. And most people would say that the Chinese National Football League has a greater number of better teams. So like one through 10 in the National Football League is obviously way better than the one through 10 in our league. But when you break down to maybe the top three teams in our league, we could probably be within the top five, top three teams of the other league um, as well. So there's two kind of like semi-pro teams. Each one has different rules for like how many foreigners can play, all these different, you know, kind of menial rules or whatever. So we play in the City Bowl, which is basically we'll play at different cities in China and we're only allowed to have three foreigners on the field at a time. Um, but, but as far as that, it's every other NFL, it's NFL rules, basically. Yeah. Awesome. How many foreigners did you guys have in your team? Three. Three? Yeah. Four, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Depends. People would come and go. Oh, know? okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there yeah. wasn't, there was like the rules were kind of fast and loose more than they are here. Like, I know you said you, you were like, why don't you come over and play practice with us for a second? <laughs> yeah. So when I joined the team um, almost a year and a half ago, I guess, they told me that I had to practice like twice before I was like registered on the team. But I don't know that I was true. I just think they didn't really like know who I was and yeah. know what I could do. But I've definitely seen like people show up a couple weeks before a game and then be playing in the game against us. Or like the best thing is when like we heard rumors about people recruiting teams from other teams to play us because they were scared to play us. So <laughs> that's so a- go, go ahead and finish this in a quickly. No, that was all. Okay. So I have obviously a lot less knowledge about football and sports in general than the two of you do. Um, but one of the things that I'm very curious to try to get an understanding of is like, what 
was this team this good to begin with? Like, was this region known for its quality and you just like jumped in the chariot and rode it to victory? Or have you done a lot of work that and brought a lot of like American sensibilities to their football team that has helped them to become um, as successful as they are? And I do not mean that as a slight. I realize that could come across as like, <laughs> so did you earn this or are you just like reaping the benefits? That's not what I mean. I'm just um, curious, like how much, how much change, how much changing you, of the team you had to facilitate. You, you play too, right? Yeah. So I coach and I play. Yeah. So them. you're a player coach. What positions do you play? <laughs> what does that even look like? Like how, do, how does your especially schedule you, break down? Especially when you don't speak their language and you have to. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I played quarterback and safety. And then I was also part-time kick returner and punt returner until I made guys good enough to actually catch kicks. Mm -hmm. And then I was also their punter um, because one of the only... One of the one of the only turnovers we had is when somebody muffed a punt, and I was so mad at them that I said nobody's ever punting again except for me because I was the only one that I could trust to catch the ball. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, are you I would the say, biggest guy honestly, on the team? Max, I would say it was like really a combination of kind of a really best case scenario. When I showed up, they were basically like really middle of the pack ran a really simple offense and had a really, really good running back. And then a couple of the good running backs um, as well. But I kind of entered into a team that was really motivated to get better and really motivated to work hard. And they had a pretty good solid, a pretty good foundation of leaders on their team. So when I showed up, I basically put most of all my energy into making their already kind of captains and leaders better captains and leaders because sure they're going to listen to me because I was the best player on the team because I played football since I was in the fifth grade. Um, But for the most part, it was just really like a perfect combination of them being really motivated and me coming in at the right time for that to happen. Now they weren't always motivated it took us about a month and a half for them to really like, oh, Austin knows what he's talking about and Austin can actually play football. Like he's kind of good at football. Then they started listening to me. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, um, it was just kind of like keep my head down, let them see it. And then there was this one point in practice that was like a pretty clear defining point. I was playing defense and and our running back holds the 100 meter record for our province when he was in high school. And so basically, and he's like 30 years old, so if no one's broken the record in 10 years. He's He was the fastest guy to come from our province. Um, and there was a very distinct moment where he comes off of the edge on a sweep and I come down and fill the alley as a safety and basically smack him at the line of scrimmage pretty hard. And everybody just kind of stops and looks at me and then looks at the running back on the ground and they kind of have this moment of like, oh, Austin can actually play football. Like he's actually kind of good at it. And really ever since that point, they came to me and said, hey, we want you to be our coach. And I looked at them and I said, what what kind of coach do you want? Do you want like a yay, good job, you did great kind of coach? Or do you want me to like change all everything? And they were like, we want you to basically be like a dictator to us and whatever you think needs to be changed coming in and change. And how's like, okay, sounds good. Um, 
how was it like, cause you coached in high school, not in high school, you coached high schoolers mm-hmm. at your other job. Cause that was part mm-hmm. of your, I think your thing, you coached football down there. Did you coach all three football, basketball, baseball when you were there? Yep. Okay. So you've coached a lot of sports. How is that? How is the difference between coaching the Chinese versus coaching? I mean, it's coaching Chinese adults versus yeah. coaching American high schoolers. So I'm right. sure there's a difference, but like, yeah. Other than probably maturity levels, is there a difference just before like the grasp of it? I don't know. Like walk us through kind of like the basics of oh, that difficulty of or the ease of coaching some like them. Well, obviously not being able to speak the same language as your players is like pretty hard and a pretty big barrier to jump through. But as far as like players go. I never want to coach freshmen ever. Like coaching adults is way better and way more fun. And they actually like, when you gain their respect, they listen to you and they trust you and they want to listen to you. Um, But it was, it was a pretty big barrier because sometimes like our translator wouldn't show up. And so we had a guy on our team who was pretty good, played a lot of different positions, but he spent two years in, in the UK. And so he had a really strong grasp of English. And so anytime that things needed to be translated, like he was there to be able to do that. But when he didn't show up, it was really, you had to really simplify the concepts. So you were still teaching the concepts to them, but doing it in simple enough language that somebody could translate it to them. And so I spent a lot of time just thinking about like offense, when you call plays, how can you make things so simple but still work. Mm-hmm. How can you change the plays to where I can call I can call the plays in Chinese and everybody else understands what's going on, but they're still effective plays. Yeah. They're not just like run middle, run right, <laughs> right, right. pass right. I want to get technical for a second. <laughs> and I apologize for the people who aren't invested in sports at a deeper knowledge than just watching it on TV. Uh, I don't have a deep knowledge of sports. I only played sports through high school, so it's not like I have like this vast knowledge. But I want to get technical a little bit. What offense did you run and what defense did you run? Just we, general. We ran a spread because we were small and was fast. It, okay. Was it was it a spread run or a spread pass? Spread run. Okay. It's what, always, always establish the run. What what defense did you run? We ran a 4-3. Okay. Mostly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because our, our best player played outside linebacker and he's small, but he was good enough to play the, the mic backer for us and basically control the mm-hmm. middle. When you played the backers, did you swap them to strong side, weak side the whole mm-hmm. time? Or you just had them to stay the same? Try to. Initially, no, because they couldn't understand it. But then as soon as we started putting... And what his name you is go Terry. Mike and Wills then? Yep. Okay. As soon as like as soon as Terry got good enough to understand the strong side of the formation, we would always put him on tight end side. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so would and you we run, run a lot of cover three? Base four three? Or would you run into like nickels or or would you just pretty much go four three? Because base four three. Because yeah, they just get it would get too complicated. Yeah. Towards the end of the year, we started talking about okay, guys, on Third and 15, we can pull a linebacker out and put a DB and go basically cover three and keep the corners up. Right. And then I could drop down and play as an extra linebacker. But anytime we could effectively switch to cover three, we did. Because then I could drop down and basically play like a linebacker and I could play kind of like a robber in the middle. So did you cover three? Did you run your your did you run one safety in the middle and two corners up to your like your three tops mm-hmm. and then you would drop down those other safety into the middle zone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry if that got, I just, I was curious. I wanted to see what the schemes were and everything and that yeah. kind of stuff. Did you run the weird punt formation scheme or did you go traditional pro style? Just traditional pro style. Yeah. yeah. Didn't want to get in that complicated. Um, what was your record your last year? I mean, how, how have you coached there one year, two years? Seven and oh. 
Oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, so I joined as the, a player first. Yeah. I didn't join as a coach. Joined as the player, and we played Wuhan and got smacked. But Wuhan was also really good that year. And the other Wuhan team actually just won the Chinese National Football League or last year. But they also have a former Division One quarterback from University of Cincinnati on their team. Okay. Well, so yeah. that's a little... That's you know, a little I'm different. not a D1 athlete, so that's, yeah. a, little, that's a little unfair. Um, <clears throat> but... We actually lost our first game that I played in because the other team was really good. And I had not practiced at quarterback at all with them. And then we hadn't gotten a first down until two minutes before halftime. And they were like, you need to play quarterback. And I was <laughs> like, I've never played quarterback for you guys. And they're like, it's okay. And so that's when we just had run middle, run right, right. all these things. But then... After a couple months, after we beat Guangzhou in December of 2018, um, they had never beaten Guangzhou before, and we thrashed them because it was snowing and Guangzhou's never cold and it was snowing where we were. We went 5-0 and in the regular season and then won both of our playoff games. Heck yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. <clears throat> awesome. Um if you get when you if you get back, oh, who's coaching now? Are they still playing? Mm-hmm. They're still practicing. There's probably no formal games happening this year. Yeah, but they're still they're still practicing. Yeah, yeah, awesome. <sighs> cool. Um, let's. We don't have much time left. You only about fifteen minutes, twenty minutes left before we got to get you going. So um, I wanted to discuss too before we we quit um, your. Why you're why are you in the U.S. right now? Because mm-hmm. I don't think you were supposed to be here Mm-mm. right now. So talk to us about what I mean. We know what led this, but I think it's interesting because Austin was in China when the coronavirus broke out. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to hear what it was like over there. If it was like, you know, just kind of take us through that if you could. Yeah. So perspective of where I'm at in China, I am two hours south of Wuhan by high speed train. Basically, it'd be like Seattle to, I don't know, Roseburg, probably oh, okay. on the West Coast. Yeah. Um, so, but with a high-speed train, it only takes two hours to get there. So we're very close because nobody drives in China. Everybody takes the Gautier or the high-speed train. That's like, Most, a, that's like a five-hour car drive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Five-hour car nobody drive and like is. less than two-hour train <laughs> yeah. ride. Um, and if you're not familiar, like... The vast majority of people trying to travel by train, they don't drive places um, because public transportation is really good. And so I actually didn't hear about it until my then girlfriend, now fiance, was coming to visit me. And all of her friends in Hong Kong said, hey, there's this pneumonia in Wuhan that you need to be like careful of. You should wear a mask on your trip up to Nanchang. And just be careful of it. Like we're hearing about this like pneumonia kind of a thing. This was January 11th or so. Um, and basically after that, we didn't really hear a whole lot of like how severe it was until we weren't going back. Right. So mm-hmm. how did they talk to you about that? Were they just like call you up one day? I was like, Hey, you got to leave now. <laughs> or was there more of a process of like, you have a week to move out, like finish. Like, Cause you're still teaching right now. Mm-hmm. Like you're still like over there doing like online stuff. Mm-hmm. And so like. Was yeah. there a ramp up or was this like, you got, we're going to, we're going to send, cause you didn't come directly to the U S mm-hmm. where'd you go first? I went to Thailand. And mm-hmm. was, did they think that they were, did they think it was going to pass over and you were going to go back track? Was that their initial goal? I think so. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to come back to the States and have a place back 
to go back to. But I have other foreign friends that left during summer, during winter holiday, because we get almost four weeks to six weeks off of teaching um, for winter holiday, uh, which is the largest, or Chinese New Year, which is the largest festival holiday in China. And so it's very natural for everybody to travel especially all the foreigners mm-hmm. to travel. And so I went to Thailand to work on a couple grad classes and to do some work down in Thailand that I do every January. Um, and it was in that time where things started to like ramp up and multiple airports in China were closing and people who were still in China who were trying to come to Thailand that I knew were having a pretty difficult time of doing it. And they were ch- trying to figure out how to leave and how to get out of the country and we were just kind of told for the most part that you're not going back anytime soon you're not going back until it's quote-unquote safe um but the first date we heard was march 10th and this is like february 3rd or 4th we were thinking you know march 10th you might be able to come back to campus you might be able to come back and teach um, and so, yeah, basically it's just been like a roller coaster since then. And, and so, um, is there, is there a plan to go back for everything? Like, are you like, what's, and yeah. you may not have one yet. And, <laughs> but like, well, yeah. I, I, we'll just, and so like, what was the, was there any sort of, cause you can, I think you have an interesting perspective because when, when did you get to the U S like how long did you spend in Thailand? Thailand? I was it? spent five weeks. Five weeks. Yeah, and you've been to Thailand before. Yeah, it's very normal. Yeah, and so um, when you got back to the, when did you get back to the U.S.? February eighteenth, seventeenth. Okay, nineteenth. And then where were you? Did you go to where were you then? Mom, this, uh, Harrisburg. This is see how much we talk. You know, <laughs> this is why we got to do an interview to get to get a hold of each other. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah, that's right. That sounds about right. And it, the last like two months have gone by so fast for me since I haven't been working. So like mm-hmm. it's just been like I I lost track of all time. I think a lot of us have. Um, do you feel like what's the feeling that you got when you were in China and all your like all of your friends and everybody that were part of your guys's program and the company you're with? Like what was like? Did you guys all expect to go back right away? And then what was the feeling of them there once you realized like. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is like when you were still in Thailand, was the same sort of feeling you got there from the people around you, what you witnessed when you came back to the U.S. or because the U.S. kind of shut down and got panicked, really, you know. Mm -hmm. And so what was that kind of like between those two? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we were pretty hopeful in Thailand. We were pretty excited and hopeful that we would go back by March, mm-hmm. middle March, late March. Um, and nobody really packed to be gone this long and nobody packed anything. And Thailand's scorching hot always, but in January and February, it's high 80s, low 90s for most of the time that you're there. And so all of my clothes are like summer clothes and yeah. I've been like wearing summer clothes for like four months. Um, and we were given a lot of different options and I still have friends who are like hiding out in Cambodia and the Philippines and Bali and they've just been stuck there mm-hmm. the whole time. Just not a bad place to be stuck. No, Bali. not at all. Um, 
but it made too much sense for me to come back to America. And even when I came back, there was still quite a bit of hope that like at some point we would go back this right. semester. And we thought at that point, I would say it was probably middle April is when I gave up the complete idea of going back at all this semester. Yeah. Did you see any, um, like, did you experience any of the media or anything on the Chinese side of like how they approached the virus Mm. and like compared to like how the U S went about it Mm. and like you got pulled out. I felt like pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have that. Well, and I got pulled out like out of what I was normally, I was going to, that COVID didn't make me go to Thailand. Like I was going there on my own power. Right. Anyways. Okay. Cause but were... I couldn't go back because of COVID. Oh, okay. That's the thing. That's different then. Okay. I yeah. thought you guys got pulled out. I forgot you had the trip already kind of, no. cause it was right during that. Do you only get four to six weeks off for, from school from them? Mm-hmm. They, they, and they work the entire rest of the year. Except for in summer. Okay. Are, are kids off kids? Are the universities off in the summer there? Like they are here. Mm-hmm. Do they kind of run Mostly. an American system? Yeah. Just yeah. a little bit later, but basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, we certainly had, I mean, I had friends who were in China that had to leave or they were trying to get to Thailand or trying to get home or trying to get to different places. Um, but I think what most of my friends have experienced is we left being told nothing. And then when we left, two weeks goes by, we're all on vacation. Mm-hmm. China goes, mm, nope, you can't come back. Yeah. And we're all just kind of like, well, now we're stuck in our places with our summer clothes because everything's warm over there. (laughs) So what what do you have left in China that you need to bring back? Oh, gosh, everything. Not everything, but mostly everything. All my clothes are over there. All of my shoes. Um, I have two pairs of shoes here. I have one pair of pants with me. Jeez, man. I want Um, like, is there any possibility of anybody bundling up the stuff and you know there is it just depends on how much you really want to pay for it like i like my family bought me a really nice coffee machine for christmas last year and like that's something that i obviously really want because coffee is a really fun hobby to me but do i really want to ship a 50 pound espresso machine back to america when that's going to cost me 200 plus dollars just to do it so i think we're hoping to be able to go back and get my stuff and get other stuff that's there um at some point in the fall but it's such a who knows when china yeah. can open right now how long do you think that trip i mean do you think because it would probably like i mean realistically if you wanted to ship all of your stuff over here we're probably looking at five six hundred dollars mm-hmm. worth of the weight mm-hmm. ticket to china is around i don't know whenever i looked it was like eight to twelve hundred dollars mm-hmm. and so i'm assuming both of you guys would go over there mm-hmm. my so, fiance and i yeah, yeah so it would probably be cheaper just to have things shipped <clears throat> Mm-hmm. But is there is there I mean is that part of like you guys just want to go back and you want to see more people like what's your next kind of year look like because I know you're I mean you're not right now not able to go back and and you're still we're doing school stuff too are you finished mm-hmm. with your kind of walk us through the next year yeah see or so. if, yeah it's been weird I know and it's and been so, so weird seeing it from like a third party on the outside <laughs> just not being able to like jump in and yeah. just you know yeah I mean. I would have sat there in January and told you that there's no way I'm getting married this year. There's no way I'm going to get engaged and there's no way that I'm going to get married and had nothing to do with my fiance at all. I, I loved her then. I love her more now, but going into 2020, obviously there was no plans whatsoever to get engaged, get married, move back, live with, you know, my parents, our parents for 
longer than I have since I was 18. <laughs> and, um, and so it's just been kind of a whirlwind of how do you get back? Do we go back? Do I go back? When do we go back? Oh, shoot. Now we're getting married. Like, when do we get married? Organs in phase one. Oh, now organs in phase two. Do we invite more people? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of just this big old hot mess of stuff we're trying to figure out and things change every day. But the plan is to eventually go back this year, Be not only to get our stuff, but to kind of have like a closure type of a thing. Um there was a contract dispute between our school and our organization. And uh, for lack of a better term, we won't be going back to our school at all in the fall. And that has a whole lot of weight as to why, but we'll never really be told why. Um, And so we can't go back to our school and teach there, but we can go back and get our stuff. So I don't know, get married, find a place to live, eventually go back to China, have a little like celebration party type of a thing. But all intense, we'll be back in the fall of 2021 for sure. Okay. Awesome. And so are you planning on going back into China? Mm-hmm. 2021? And then would you go now with your fiance mm-hmm. and well, you make sure your wife at that point. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And is she doing the same thing? Is she wanting to do teaching English over there? Or does she have a different angle that she's trying to work at? No, she, we're both very passionate about education. And so she's going to end up doing the same master's program that I am. And then when she finishes, we'll probably look into further education as well and looking at getting doctorates. Um, And so this prevents, or sorry, presents a really good opportunity to live where we want to, to be in China together and to pursue careers and degrees that we want to be able to pursue. So, and Max, jump in here at any point in time if I'm asking too many questions or talking, no, you're good. talking too you're much. Good. That's, this, these are all the questions I would ask to you reading my mind. Um, the what, what do you have a plan? Not a plan. <laughs> There's a lot going on in your life, so I'm not going to ask you to look too far forward. But <laughs> what are you thinking about for your doctorate? Because I would I would like to also – now, I'm not even going to say that because that's never going to happen. I'm never getting <laughs> my doctorate. I'm not going back to school for that long. Um, what do you think? Because like, as much as you – you said your love is being and spending time with Chinese people. So do you think you would want to pursue a doctorate in learning more about their culture and looking towards that? Or would mm-hmm. you want to move more towards the teaching angle and do your doctorate in that way i think if i had to make a decision right now i would look into something along the lines of probably like psycholinguistics or psycholinguistics um or something along the lines of like i don't know what it would be called but you would probably call it like phonetics rhythms or like phonology so you would look at how the sounds in languages can be taught and can be learned. Um, so like, let me just give you a really quick example of why English is really troublesome. English uses peaks to make words stand out in our language. And so there are specific words that have louder vowels and longer vowels in our language. So what this does is it makes us reduce sounds, which is why we have words like, sup, how you doing? Because how you doing is not grammatically correct. You would always say, how are you doing? But we want to shorten things. We want to make things faster. When you do that to Chinese, 
you mess up words completely because if you make a word louder or longer, now you're changing the tone of the word. When you change the tone of the word, you change the word completely. And so there are ways that we naturally change peaks in Chinese as an English speaker that we're completely unaware of. And so I don't know if I would look more into like studying Japanese and Chinese and English and just like world languages. Um, I definitely like have a goal to be fluent in Chinese and Japanese at some point. So if there was a PhD program that like forced you to be fluent, that'd be really cool. Um, but probably into like something in the linguistics well, linguistics realm as of now. There's some apps I think called Duo <laughs> that that you can learn languages. Duolingo on, that you may want to check out. Yeah, yeah, it would work. <laughs> no, <laughs> just I downloaded an app for a week and looked at Japanese, and I was like, I recognize that character. I learned that. <laughs> I remember learning these. I remember mm-hmm. learning these. Uh, Japanese is the. Interesting language. It's great. I really enjoyed my time learning Japanese. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, I forgot. I, it was the, hard. There was a point where I could learn, I, I could read any hiragana you gave me. Mm-hmm. But no, nah, I just can't do it. Like, we mm-hmm. never got to katakana or anything like that. But like, mm-hmm. I could read all hiragana and then speak the, the, the or the, the Romanized. <laughs> the Romanized, yeah. I mean, I could yeah, read actual characters in hiragana too, but right. like, the, the Romanized. Getting into the, getting into the kanji and the cultural meanings behind Oh, yeah, 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 is... the kanji and that kind of stuff, yeah. Um, Quite difficult. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I was wondering what kind of path you may have gone down with your, so with that kind of path, do you see, and I'm asking you to plan your future out here. So, you know, this is what we're doing. Um, <laughs> are you always going to be spending, do you think time overseas? Is that where you're like, I mean, you never know what's going to happen in 10 years. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I was in Orlando and I never would have thought I'd be back in Oregon because I literally <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. and so like I'm here though. And so mm-hmm. um, if you were to, pick a point now would you want to continue to be overseas Mm -hmm. and just kind of that's where you're going to be forever and then i think down the road eventually my fiance and i would like to end up teaching at the same university back in the states okay but this is probably like 20 plus yeah plan like far down the road but for most of our life and probably the first 15 20 years of our marriage i imagine most of it will be overseas we have some pretty like specific places we want to try to get to, um, not just China. We're going to go to China now because China changes every single year and who knows how long, one, who knows how long we'll actually be able to be there, but they may be done with English soon as well, depending on things we could spend a whole nother episode talking yeah. about as well. Um, well, I heard you're here for the next year, so we have some time to do more episodes together. We <laughs> may have to send one of these mics with you so you can, so you can do it with us. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, would, if you could pick anywhere in the world to live right now, where would it be? To live right now, given everything that's going on? No, why don't Just we, whatever. why don't we remove that? Like, okay. what, let's remove like what's happening right now with COVID. Mm-hmm. And so if there wasn't some sort of restriction on the virus, mm-hmm. um, and you could just place yourself someplace and like plant yourself into like now this is where my job is my family's here like mm-hmm. where would you be at it'd be really hard not to want to go back to Nanchang because mm-hmm. everything's already established there yeah but if I had to pick a different city it would be China right now um I would really love to live in Chengdu um most people don't know that Chengdu Hua or Sichuan Hua was almost the national language of China instead of Putonghua uh Chengdu is like the LA of China 
Um, and so it's like a little bit more liberal than the East mm-hmm. Coast cities and a little bit more progressive progressive in China. Yeah. Who knows what that actually means? Well, um, that's the next but, episode we're going to talk about, yeah. <laughs> the social aspects of China. Yeah. Um, but Chengdu would be a great place. Sweet. Is Chengdu south? south? Southwest. That, was that, is that, how do you spell it? C-H-E-N-G-D-U. Okay, I've been there. I was just, I wasn't sure. Like, I've been to like 10 different cities, so I can't yeah. like, I can't ever like figure <laughs> out which ones. Is that the one that has a bunch of hills in it? Yeah. Is that the one they call the spicy women because they eat a bunch of spicy food? Yeah. That was our, our yeah. translator told us that. Yeah. It's like, this place has the spicy women. It does. Is that mm-hmm. on the Yellow River too? Or oh, close to it? Probably. Probably. I don't know. I'd have to look okay. at a map. Yeah, yeah. Because I yeah. remember we were there and we went from the Yellow River and we took a three-day cruise up to uh, Shanghai. And we ended mm-hmm. in Shanghai. I think mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That was one of my favorite cities to be in. It was yeah. really, really cool. Well, so there's Chengdu and then there's Chongqing. Chongqing is like the semi-autonomous region. Chongqing okay. has like, you're, like, you would be walking around and there's like roads that are layered. And there's like different... Rose. I don't know. Someone explained it to me, but someone explained to me that there's like hills in the city of Chongqing that makes it look really cool. But it's also really spicy because it's southwest mm-hmm. China. Chengdu, I've heard where Chengdu is, is just absolutely beautiful. And the whole Sichuan province is supposed to be really yeah. beautiful. So. I, I know I've been to both of those cities. And I don't <laughs> yeah. remember which. I, I mean, Like yeah. I said, it was 11 years ago. I have no idea. I mean, literally almost 11 years ago to the day. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was in... Uh, China from May. I was, I think it was there during May because I remember being in Tibet when I was my birthday when I turned 21. Um, yeah, that city was awesome, man. There was a museum. I, it was just, I just remember seeing like, I love cities that like integrate really incredible structures and skyscrapers into the hills and stuff that they mm-hmm. have. It's just really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Max yeah, has you, great food. Yeah. I mean, the whole place has. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about I know. Chinese food. Yeah. I remember the time that I was there, the only time I got sick twice. And I got I real sick. I was up all night. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I had I had Pizza Hut and Papa John's. <laughs> when I ate the local food, never got sick once. Mm. When I ate the Pizza Hut and Papa John's is when I got sick, which I thought was like... Really, I mean, technically, those are still local, right? Because right. you're still getting the local right. ingredients. It's but just I thought, localized version. yeah, I thought it was really interesting that I got the look like I got my sickness when <laughs> when I was eating the American versions of like or the That's Chinese really versions of the American companies. Mm-hmm. Um, Max, do you have anything you want to add? Any questions? Final parts? Like any I little have things? Tons of questions, um, but I definitely think we should not start asking them now. I want to say congratulations, Austin, on your engagement. That's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here, for being alive. I'm really glad about that. I hope that the communities that you engage with and the friends and families that you met while you were there are okay through all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are well, and they've been doing well. You know, a lot of my students went back to their hometowns. A lot of them don't live in the city. They come to the city for the university. Um, But for the most part, none of my students, I'm sure some of my students did because I've taught a lot of students, but none of my recent students had any personal family or anything with COVID or getting the virus. And Chinese people quarantine a lot better than Americans do. So they were pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, it's not hard. <laughs> yep. All right, man. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Mm-hmm. This has been really yeah. wonderful. It is like literally the time that we need to let you go. Um, 
And so I'm not going to make this too long. But if people want to find you and contact you, do you have social medias that you want to throw out? Not really. You don't have any social medias? You're not on Twitter or Instagram? But I'm not on... Okay, cool. Well, if you want to talk to Austin, um, get in touch with Max and I because (laughs) we um, we can point you in the right direction. I'm pretty close, so I can be the bridge there. Um, I am at all of the things that I have are at Damp Mango, D-A-M-P-3-D Mango, and um, Max, you're at the socials. All of the things at Max Baron Reed. Excellent. Um, Podcast at InfinitePulp.com. It's the first time I got that right, the very first time. I'm very excited about that. I always screw that one up. Um, Again, man, thank you so much for being here. It's been wonderful. I've learned so much that I didn't know, and I'm ashamed to be your older brother. And uh, How dare you not know things? Everybody (laughs) should know everything. I know. It's just, there are things that I should know that I didn't know that happened in this conversation, though. So Embarrassing. uh, So not everything is okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys and everybody out there listening. If you have any questions and want to dive deeper into China, let me know. Send us an email. Um, we can pull something together for you and um, we'll figure it out and we'll do that. And so we we want to we want to have that dialogue. Um, but uh, that's it. This is the end of the show. Go do things. Have some fun Bye. today. <laughs> have a good night. Bye bye.